Hi everyone, welcome back to Nobody Asked. On today's episode, I interview my papa. Unfortunately, we had to do the interview over Zoom, so sometimes there's some background sound issues and that type of thing. I tried to edit out around them as much as possible, but as you'll see in a few seconds, the whole story that he tells is really, really interesting and important, so I didn't want to cut out too much. Um, so yeah, if you hear any background noises, I tried my best, but I think it'll be worth it, uh, just to hear the whole story. So yeah, it gets a little bit emotional, mainly I get a little bit emotional, um, and I think his story is a really important one to tell, I think it's really interesting, and I think he's really remarkable, so I hope y'all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Also, there are some pictures that we referenced that my papa actually prepared just as talking points uh, for this episode. So if you want to know what we're talking about, go check out the podcast Instagram at nobodyasked underscore WFW so you can follow along and see the pictures that we reference. I'll include the timestamps on the post so you know which ones are which. Hi! You look nice. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, audio. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, you can. Okay, now I got you now. Okay. For for some reason, I got a little I got a little Bose uh, Bluetooth speaker, and and sometimes it just doesn't want to connect. But, uh. <laughs> um, I found out the other day actually on accident that it'll pick up like what's coming through my microphone and record it onto GarageBand. Um, so I've been playing with that, and I'm hoping that it works. So you you go back later, then you you edit it all, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a big job. It's kind of fun, actually. And I think it'd be fun to do a podcast live, but it's also scary because you have to watch what you say. So I, I like editing it because I can take some things out. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I won't be careful about what I say then. I'll oh, say no. whatever I want. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so if okay. you want to introduce yourself and, like, who you are, and then I'll start asking questions after that. Okay, well, officially I'm John Miller, but I go by Jack. And uh, I'm um, retired, living in Goodyear, Arizona. Uh, we, My wife and I, Jill, moved down here in 2013 from Seattle, where we lived for about mm, 40 years. And, um, and then um, before that, lived in... Um, Indianapolis, where I went to medical school, and before that, uh, almost exclusively in Montana, in Great Falls, where I grew up, and then in Bozeman, where I went to school, college. Yeah. (laughs) So then, do you want to talk about, like, how you grew up, or, and then, like, just kind of, it doesn't have to be brief, but, like, a summarization of, like, your life into, like, whatever level of detail you want. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in, in, like I said, in Great Falls, and Great Falls is right in the central part of Montana. It's in, in uh, the western part of the state is a mountainous region, and in the, in the, Great Falls is in the plains. And my uh, uh, a little bit about my my parents. My actually, it's it's I mean, kind of fascinating. My my father worked in the dairy of uh, what's called was St. Thomas Orphan's Home in Great Falls. And my mother uh, was a resident there. Her mother died, you know, her mother actually, um, it, the picture I sent you about the old farm, mm-hmm. 
um, that's where my mother lived. Oh, and okay. They, they had, uh, I think, I think they had a total of eight children. One, one died, um, uh, drowned in a res in the reservoir, the farm reservoir. At one point, the the story is that a, a cow n- nudged her and she, oh, she fell into the reservoir and died. But then, um, my grandmother, um, uh, on my mom's side, uh, suffered from mental illness after the birth of her last child. Mm. Her last child, uh, Jerry was um, actually fostered out because my, and I don't, you know, the details of this are really sketchy, but um, she ended up in the state mental hospital in a place called Warm Springs, Montana. In retrospect, I think she probably suffered from postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. That's a total guess on my part. Yeah. And I wish that at, uh, when I was living in Montana, when I was in the Air Force, I wish that I had gone to Warm Springs to see if they had any record about mm. about her, but missed out on that. So when she went to um, the mental hospital, the uh, there were there were uh, two boys, Arnold and Francis, and there were uh, uh, Marcella, my mother Alice, Dorothy, um, that um, and Eleanor. So there were those girls, they, they, I don't know if the state required it or if my grandfather just decided he could not deal with all the children on the farm, that they were sent to the orphan's home in Great Falls. Um, it was a Catholic orphan's home. And uh, um, I, I, again, I don't have a lot of history about it, but it was uh, not a fun place for young children to be. Yeah. Um, my. The grandfather that I mentioned, Ed, Edward Durkis, he homesteaded that property. So he was given that property by the government and he worked the railroad through that area. He was working on the railroad and he was, in his spare time, built the farm. Hmm. Uh, so, it's, I mean, in, in amazing in, in, when you think about it. He came from yeah. Minnesota out to Montana, got that property, built the farm. Um, so... So my father was working in the dairy, Merle. His name was Merle Pluris, P-L-U-R-I-S. And, uh, and my mother was a, a high school student there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, they got married. My mother was 17 mm-hmm. when she married Merle. And my brother Bob, was Robert Bob, was born um, uh, in 1941. Uh, my father then was working in the Anaconda copper mining um, facility in Great Falls. Uh, <clears throat> the Great Falls was known to have a huge smokestack. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it was hundreds of feet high for the smelting company. They, they took copper and, and smelted it in and put it into wire and so on. And he worked in that refinery. Hmm. Um, he suffered from um, rheumatic heart disease. Uh, rheumatic heart disease is caused by uh, the bacteria Streptococcus. Okay. And and they in those days they had no treatment for Streptococcus, and it affected the valves of his heart. Mm. Um, you know, today you just treat people with penicillin. Yeah. Uh, well, so it affected the and so he had heart disease as, as a young man. Um, and this the story I've heard is that even going to work. 
uh, he couldn't do his work eventually because he, his heart was in such bad condition and his friends did his work for him mm. while he was at work so he could get paid. Well, he died when I was five years old. He was 31 years old. Mm. And, uh, and uh, so my mother was left with three children. She would have been 31, 24 years old. She was seven years younger than my dad. And so she had three children. She had, uh, I don't think she graduated from high school. Mm. But she was left to fend for these three kids. They had purchased a little property in the, on the west side of Great Falls, a couple of acres, actually. Mm. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> bought a couple of acres. Built, built, uh, they moved a house in. Uh, and uh, I had Uncle Arnold that was a house mover. <laughs> and they found a house someplace and moved it in. It was a one-bedroom house. Uh, I, I can picture it clearly, but one bedroom. And so there were the, the parents and three kids living in one-bedroom house in Great Falls. And, um, uh, and then, well, not- notably about that, Bob, my brother Bob and I grew up spending a lot of time on the farm we'll talk about that but mm-hmm. and and uh, running into people after my father died uh, they always said Merle was the most honest hard-working person I knew he was a great friend to people and I mentioned that because I think Bob and I both incorporated that mm-hmm. I mean it was we it was his legacy to us that right. his friends saw him as honest and hardworking. Um, everybody liked Merle, and that was that was a a, a great uh, legacy. So, hmm. so then my mother uh, that was nineteen. He died in nineteen forty seven. I was five. Two years later, she married Joe Miller, which is where how we got the Miller name. Hmm. He was an Air Force sergeant in the Air Force base in Great Falls, and. Um, so they married in 1949, and so we had a family again. Uh, he had an air, was in the Air Force, so he made a reasonable mm-hmm. living. And uh, he was like a big kid, and Joe Miller was. He, he was, I mean, he, he formed a, a strong friendship with my Uncle Francis, who was, that took over the farm that we'll talk about. But, mm-hmm. He, he formed a, they were just buddies, hmm. hunting, fishing, camping. We spent a lot of time as a family out of the farm. Um, and, and we spent a lot of time hunting and fishing, Bob and I, with Francis and Joe. Um, so, um, so we had a, I mean, it was a, it was a good family. I mean, he came, Joe came in and was a big, big brother almost to Bob and I. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Mer- Merlene too, my sister Merlene. Um, then, unfortunately, my mother contracted breast cancer, mm-hmm. um, and probably about 1951 or 52, because um, she was treated at, in those days. Treatment for breast cancer was really archaic. It was surgery and radiation, mm-hmm. and uh, no chemotherapy in those days. And she, she. Um, lived until July of 1954, and she died at, in her age at 31. So both my parents died at 31. My dad died seven years before that. Um, and um, and so then Joe is left with three kids that aren't his, and uh, he 
he we, he he adopted us within a week or two of her death. Mm. Um, on her deathbed, she gave everything to Joe Miller, and and uh, which meant the property in Great Falls that my father and she had uh, had uh, developed. Well, <clears throat> so um, so then we got the Miller name. That kind of caused problems in the family on the Pluris side because they didn't want Bob and I to lose the Pluris name. My father was the last Pluris, oh, okay. and they wanted the name to continue. So there was a rift going on in the family that we weren't too much aware of that until later, but mm. uh, Joe Miller adopted us. And how old were you and, at this time? Uh, and that was my seventh grade of okay. junior high. Uh, my homeroom teacher for seventh grade was Irene Neubauer, she was from South Dakota, and during one of the parent conferences, Joe met Irene in 1954, the fall of 54. They married in 1956. <laughs> so, um, so again, there's a family, but they were they were in their early 30s. I was uh, when they married 14. Bob was 15. Marine was 11. And honestly, I don't think they knew what to do with us. Yeah. Um, so there was two families living in the house at that point. Now, by that time, the house had been added on to, there was a couple extra bedrooms, three extra bedrooms, remodeling. It was a three so there were plenty of bedrooms for everybody. But um, my sister and I were talking just this last week, and we cannot remember having a meal together as a family. Mm. Uh, Joe and Irene would have their meals. The kids would have their meal. Honestly, can't remember. And... I uh, can't recall. So, so just to give you the picture, there's these two right. families. Well, that's 1956. We were together until the summer of 1959 when Joe Miller was transferred to France in the Air Force. Um, and so Merlene went with Joe and Irene to France. Bob had just graduated high school. And I lived with friends during the senior year, my senior year. They were just down the down the road from our house, um, six or eight blocks. It was kind of a rural area, but six blocks away. So I did, their names were Dobsons, Cora and Doug Dobson. They had two sons and they took me get, took me in and I lived with mm. them my senior year. Um, during the, my senior year, kind of funny, when I think about it, I knew I was going to college, but I had no way of knowing. I had no way of knowing how I was going <laughs> to do it. I mean, when I think back about it, I, I, it's kind of strange. But um, during my senior year in high school, Bonnie McIntyre was a classmate. And Bonnie was a single child of Ozzie and Leona McIntyre. Uh, Ozzie was an a executive in a small moderately small, large construction company in Great Falls. They were um, wealthy by Great Falls standards. Um, uh, they had a very nice home, a swimming pool, and so on. Well, Bonnie took me home. She took me, essentially took me home. She was, she was a great person. We were just friends, but she introduced me to their parents and, and, um, uh, they gave me a part-time job at, it was called McLaughlin Construction Company in Great Falls, mm -hmm. McLaughlin. And I, I swept floors and cleaned the place part-time when I was a senior in high school. Well, um, then it was summer, the summer after my high school, my senior year in high school, uh, they 
gave me a job on a road construction job in central south Montana. And so I went down, lived in a little travel trailer with a couple of other guys, and we worked on this interstate highway that they were putting through Montana, Interstate 90. And um, about, uh, there's a lot of things, something I'll get a chance to tell you about some of the things that we we, we did while I was down there. But uh, about two-thirds of the way through the summer, they brought me back to Great Falls. And McLaughlin had another job on a highway just outside of Great Falls. Um, and uh, and I lived in their basement. Hmm. Uh, and that was, I mean, okay. And, and at that point, Bonnie, my good friend, she was dating a, a, um, a guy that was a couple years older than she was. And he was, well, in those days, you called him a hood. He was a hood. He was, <laughs> he was kind of wild and reckless. Yeah. And, and the McIntyres, especially Leona McIntyre, did not accept it. And, and Bonnie, they wanted Bonnie to go to college. Bonnie was refusing to go to college. So they brought me home and uh, to the work site near Great Falls. And I can, I can remember, they, we all hopped on an airplane. First time I ever flew on a commercial airplane, we went to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Because they wanted Bonnie to go to Arizona State University. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so uh, beginning the picture of <laughs> what this is like. <laughs> so Bonnie didn't want to be there, and and I'm there as sort of the you know the neutralizing factor. I think we we she had no interest in looking at colleges. We we rented a car and drove from Phoenix to Anaheim to go to Disneyland. Mm. And, and Bonnie, I, I told her this recently, um, uh, she was a, she was a, she, she gave her parents a bad time. Mm. I mean, it was a, it was not fun driving from Phoenix to, <laughs> to Disneyland. Not like some of the times we've had in Disneyland, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll stop there to say that Bonnie, uh, uh, Bonnie went on to marry Ed the next year and her, her parents didn't even go to the wedding. Mm. Her uncle gave her away, and her parents didn't go to the wedding. Well, fast forward. Bonnie went. They went on to raise four four boys. Bonnie did a wonderful job. She reconciled with her family about the time I graduated from college, and and uh, just a, she was a great person, great heart. Un- unfortunately, Bonnie died about a year and a half ago. Mm. Uh, she developed an, uh, an immune disease, and uh, and. Uh, and so she's been gone now for about a year and a half. Um, uh, so, so it's time to go to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, summer's over, it's time to go to college. And essentially, Ozzy and Lona's, Leona put me through college, paid for my way through wow. undergraduate school, um, uh, spoiled me. I could honestly spoil me. They were very, very generous to me. Um, and... Um, and I mean, uh, in ways that I never, ever expected. I mean, just it's kind of amazing to think about in a way. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, I went to I went to Montana State College. It was called then it's now Montana State University. Mm-hmm. And I, I was started out majoring in pre-med, got interested in some business things and switched to business and graduated in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jill came to Montana State uh, two years after I did. 
I was I was in an organization that helped women move into the women's women's dormitory. And when she drove up, I helped her move into her room, called her that night, said, you want to go for a Coke? We started <laughs> dating and that, that's it. Aww. I mean, the first night she got there, we started dating and we married <laughs> them two years later Aww. when I graduated. Um, I'm spending quite a bit of time on the history. Do you, is this? No, this is perfect. Be? Yeah. Okay. Um, no, I'm so, interested too. So this is awesome. Okay. Well, great. <laughs> um, so, um, so Jill and I, so, we were very active in campus, uh, student government and so on. Jill was homecoming queen Our my senior year. I was student body vice president. Um, met some, and I was, she was in the, in the Pi Phi, Pi Beta Phi mm-hmm. sorority. I was in Sigma Alpha. And it was a wonderful time of Bozeman. We were, I mean, we had, we looked back on the college days. I mean, I should have studied harder, but <laughs> <laughs> I graduated on my birthday and, 1964, and we married on June 20th. Um, we took a, um, a, a brief honeymoon in the Glacier Park area, and then we packed up our car. I had been accepted as a, into, as a trainee with the Bank of America in the San Francisco area. And so we loaded up our little trailer, and we headed off to California. <laughs> and and uh, there's other details of that that are really honest regarding friends that we met there mm. you know, we are still friends with today mm. we were in we got in California in July and I, I started um, uh, the, the trainee program which was in San Francisco I was assigned to a little bank on the, on the east side of the East Bay they call it in San Leandro but it was about three months into the uh, training program that I thought this is not going to work for me. Mm. It was really pretty much I mean, great, great people, but it was standard operating procedure. I could tell that the branch, the branch manager and his, the, the, the operations officer really didn't have many decisions they had to make. Anyway, I, I, like I think I heard you speak recently, I wasn't challenged like I wanted to be. So, in, at Christmas time, we packed up our car, packed up the trailer, and headed back to Bozeman, mm. where I was going to continue my pre-med studies. Um, it was an interesting trip back. We got snowed in in West Yellowstone, had to stay over West Yellowstone for a couple of nights because we couldn't get out of the town. Yeah. Uh, on the way back to Bozeman, I literally was out in front of the car with a stick trying to figure out where the pavement was because oh we were in a gosh. blizzard of White House. <laughs> it, was a, it wasn't a great welcome back to Montana. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> but we rented a little apartment uh, in, in Bozeman. Um, it just says that history, I think our rent was either 55 or $65 a month. Mm. A little, little, apart, little basement apartment. Um, and I... I, I got back in. It was no problem getting back into school. They would accept me back. And so uh, I had two quarters at Montana State in 1960. That would have been 1965, 66. And then I had to complete another year. Um, so I, then I applied to medical school my second year there. Jill finished she, when she we went when she married. She was only a sophomore, oh, so okay. she when she got back to Bozeman. She finished her yeah. education degree there, 
Um, in the meantime, while I was waiting to get accepted to medical school, this was the height of the Vietnam War. Okay. And I got drafted. Mm-hmm. The army called me up and said, you got to go put a uniform on. I said, I want to go to medical school. And they said, sorry, you're going to get drafted. So, so I, I, uh, I, I got drafted, but I, they were going to let me finish my, my studies at the university when I got accepted to Indiana University Medical School. Okay. So the draft board said, fine, we'll give you a deformant until you finish your medical school. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Jill and I spent the summer in Great Falls, packed up our trailer, drove to Indianapolis, uh, where she began teaching uh, in, in a little Greenwood. It was a little town south of Indianapolis, and, we were, and I started medical school. Um, so um, we would spend a couple of summers, we came back to Great Falls to work. Uh, and then when I got into my, between my sophomore and junior year in medical school, uh, we stayed in Indianapolis. I had part-time jobs there and working in an emergency room and so on. Um, so Kristen was born my senior year. Your aunt Kristen was born in my senior year in uh, in uh, medical school. She was born in April. I graduated in June. Um, then in those days, it was time to do an internship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we looked at we looked at several places around the country. We chose to stay in in Indianapolis, where uh, I had done some work in a in a hospital there, Methodist Hospital is where I interned, and it had 1,200 beds. It was a huge hospital, oh. wonderful hospital, great place to train. Mm-hmm. I mean, there all kinds of specialists were there. And so I did what was called a rotating internship. And, uh, and uh, during, my, during medical school, it, they were drafting every male medical graduate into the service because of the Vietnam War. Right. So we knew as males, we knew we were going to be drafted. Yeah. Uh, again. <laughs> <laughs> the the they had a program called early commissioning program, uh, which uh, allowed us to join choose the service we wanted to go in rather than taking a chance when we got out to be oh, okay. in our service. And so I chose the Air Force mm-hmm. and uh, was uh, commissioned in my junior year of medical school. Um, you didn't get any pay or anything. You just got all of this lock in the service that you were going into. Mm-hmm. I finished my internship. Um, I, um, I went to Wichita Falls, Texas for a couple of weeks. That was my basic training. They taught us how to wear the uniform and how to, you know, medical things about forms used in the hospitals. Yeah. And um, I think I did tell you some of this in a, in a, mm-hmm. a letter or something recently. Um, so I finished that. We went back to Indianapolis, packed up our things. And, and oh, well, the Air Force was kind enough to station me in my hometown <laughs> the, where Joe Miller was. My stepfather was as a, he wasn't there then, but... Right. Um, but I went back there from a 1,200-bed hospital where I interned to a 20-bed hospital at Mount oh. Air Force Base in Great Falls. <laughs> but it was a good experience. Um, I, was in, I, I was in my hometown. I, I liked that part of it. There were exclusively young doctors at the hospital, you know, and, and they were all serving for a couple of years in the Air Force there. And it was a, it was a good experience. Um, the base had a, a large pediatric cohort 
and the pediatrician that came to Mount Term, Bob Corwin, was chief resident at Syracuse University. Uh, bright guy, neat guy. Well, there were too many children for him to take care of, so he came to the, the clinic, that sort of like a family clinic, and they said, does anybody want to help me in, in pediatrics? So I raised my hand. I got to work for, with Bob for a couple of years. We had our own little offices, mm -hmm. and I saw exclusively pediatric patients for two years, and then interviewed and got accepted to the University of Washington pediatric program. Okay. So when we when we finished our tour at the Air Force in Great Falls, packed up our car, went to went to Seattle, <laughs> and at the University of Washington Children, it was called at the time it was called Children's Orthopedic Hospital. Today it's called Children Seattle Children's Hospital, mm. um, where I did two years of pediatrics, and um, and then switched over into psychiatry, did two years of adult psychiatry, and then did a two year child and adolescent fellowship. So that got me to where I could go to work. <laughs> I finished my training. <laughs> so I'll pause for a minute mm -hmm. and and I could uh, I can go on along that trail or we can switch and talk about something else you want to do. But that that's sort of my background, how I got to how I got to be a psychiatrist. Can I ask you why did you pick the Air Force over other branches since you got to choose? Um, probably partly because my stepfather was in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. um, I was more familiar with the Air Force. Um, I liked aviation, wanted to get close to planes, so that, probably that's why I did. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then, how did Nana feel about all the moving around? Oh, that's a good. That's a good question. Um, um, I think it was just part of a, a journey, and I think she 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 enjoyed getting out of Great Falls, yeah. uh, and getting out of Montana, um, and so I think we were good partnership of, of you know getting my training done, mm -hmm. because then um, during my uh, let's see it was it would have been about the time your mom was born. Jill got an interest in law, as you know, and um, did the LSAT. And at that point, didn't know where she was going to get accepted. Mm. And so I was just finishing my training, and I, and I said, oh, okay, you followed me around for all these years getting training. Wherever you get in, we'll move. Mm. Uh, she was fortunate and got into the University of Washington, but we could have moved at that point, too. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, but I think, you know, growing Great Falls was 30-some thousand people, so relatively small. It was nice to get out and yeah. become more familiar with larger cities and so on. I think so we enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, that makes And the neat thing I will say there, too, and I, I was thinking about this before we got on, the people we met, whether it would be just for six months that we were in the Bay Area coming back, um, I had a mentor in Bozeman, um, Dr. John Heaterks. He he was a he was a wonderful family physician in in in, uh, in Bozeman. He uh, he and his brother and his dad were all family doctors in in the clinic. And he he took me in in a way and and helped mentor me uh, to. Uh, Great to be so great friends in both. We had good friends in Indianapolis when we were there. And I was, I, I, think, I think about looking back, 
that made all the difference in the world, people mm. in my life. Like, like even when I say like the McIntyres, it took me in as a, I mean, you wonder how that happened. Right. So you many know, things had to line up, yeah, to make that all uh-huh. work. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. I'm amazed that you remember all the names. You're listing off like all the names, like first and last. And it's amazing to me because I can't even remember like, half my teacher's name sometimes while I'm in school. So it's, it's really impressive. <laughs> well, you've got a great memory though. Uh, I, I'm you. sleeping this out. <laughs> yeah. 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 So if you want to talk more about the psychiatry and that type of thing, I'd like to hear, like if you have any interesting stories or anything like that, I'd like to hear those. Okay. Um, well, when I finished training another, another friend story, when I finished training, Joe and I had met um, Evan and Gloria Otteson um, in about the first year we were in Seattle. 19, we came, went to Seattle in 1973, and, and uh, we met him through the uh, was a, um, Christian Medical Society, hmm. and he was part of that. We went as, as I was in the training and we went to that. Uh, well, Evan was practicing psychiatry downtown Seattle in a, t- in a tower in downtown Seattle. And um, and it was it was decided that I would go into their practice when I finished. And so uh, it was a it was a few months before I finished my training actually that I started to go down to um, uh, it was called the Cabrini Tower where Evan was on the I think the 18th floor, and and Evan in, 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 he fed my practice. He made sure I had a patient the first time I showed up down there. He made and and in psychiatry, it's not that easy to do because it's not a volume practice, you know. Mm-hmm. So he shared his patients with me to get me start, help get me started. Right. And and uh, we when when I finished training, we moved to Bellevue across the Lake Washington is is, is between it separates Seattle from the east side. And we, we moved to the east side. Primarily, we moved there because of schools. Schools in the Seattle area were deteriorating, mm-hmm. and uh, busing was a big deal at that point. I don't know if you read about busing in the 70s. No. Um, they, but Kristen would have had a, had a ride from... They were, they, were, they were trying to integrate the schools. Okay. So they were taking white students from the suburbs and taking in downtown Seattle to try to integrate the schools. In retrospect, it was a terrible, it was a terrible failure. Uh, so in about the third grade or fourth grade, she would have been required 45 minutes. She had a, she had a five minute walk to a neighborhood school mm-hmm. and she would have been required to bus downtown Seattle for 45 minutes. And we ended up, and we just thought, there, some kids probably would have done well in that situation. Kristen was, we judged, would, wouldn't have. And so we moved to Bellevue primarily for schools. Mm. And um, and so uh, Evan Otteson lived in Bellevue. And so the, the goal was start, at the, start downtown Seattle, start my practice down there, and then move to Bellevue. So about, I was probably six months into my practice or so, and I found an office in Bellevue and rented an office in Bellevue, set it up. And, if, and Nana took time off from uh, law school to help set the office up and work in the office until we got it going. And then Evan gradually left his practice in Seattle and we joined up in Bellevue. And a, um, a, another, uh, Larry Einspar, who was a fellow 
with me, uh, fellowship in our fellowship for trial analysis. He joined us. Hmm. So the three of us had, we, we practiced together for 20, about 20 years. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, a. we, we moved around Bellevue a little bit, but it was, it was good. Well, my practice, um, initially when I went into practice, I did a lot of hospital work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a way to get started and networking and so on. And so for probably for about three or four years, I did a fair amount of hospital work and almost exclusively adolescent work. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, even, even though I, trained in child and adolescent, I was much more taken to, much more um, drawn to working with adolescents. Mm-hmm. And so um, more than 90, probably 90%, 80 to 90% of my practice was adolescents. And I did do, do, do some adult work also. But um, And so um, working with fairly severely ill patients that I was hospitalizing working with, and then gradually built and developed exclusively an office-based practice, mm. which, which in, a, in a place like Bellevue, uh, your work, I was working with educated, um, you know, patients. And so right. I, I had a great practice. I had a great practice. I, I, uh, I, you don't make friends necessarily with your patients, but I, Mm-hmm. Never once didn't want to go to work. And mm-hmm. some people talk about in psychiatry, the frequent question you get, well, how do you, how do you, how do you leave it? You know, how do you right. fit what's going on in the office? And I had an uncanny ability to just flip the switch. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was, when I was home, I was home. I wasn't in the office. And I mean, I didn't think and dwell about patient, uh, patient work. Our, our little group practice and we took really good care of patients. Um, you know, during the week, I took call for all of my practice. On Friday, I signed out to either Evan or Larry, mm-hmm. and they covered the week. We alternated covering the weekends. Oh, yeah. But, I think mom's yeah. talked about this. It, She's it, told me it, about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was um, a friend recently had a medical problem. He called their his clinic on a Thursday night and didn't hear back from them until Monday. Mm. And I was telling him, I was so struck by that because I, I don't think, I don't think people had to wait an hour to hear from us. And mm. not, not just me, but Larry and Evan, the same thing. I mean, you really, we really covered our practice well. And I think uh, tried to give the best care that we could. It was a the interesting part. Of it. I went to be in practice in 1979 and it was a private practice. So, uh, you'll you'll appreciate this because you're a uh, freedom loving person. Yes. I was free to run my practice as I wanted to run it. Mm-hmm. I, I was my own boss. I set my own schedule. Um, and one of the things I did is I decided to give away ten percent of my time as a, a donation uh, mm-hmm. because because Bellevue was upper income. Mm-hmm. moderate middle to upper income uh, but I got ref- so so most of the patients had insurance or were able to pay but uh, for instance one patient was re- referred to me probably about a, a year first couple of years I was in practice and uh, she was covered by an insurance moderately covered by an insurance policy that didn't cover they didn't pay me 
I was outside of their network. Okay. And, um, and I, I took care of her for a, probably 15 years and never charged her a dime wow. because she was a single, single mom. Um, and I, but I had the, I had the freedom to do that. Right. Um, as I, as my practice went on and as health insurance and managed care changed, uh, the managed care insurance companies started to control how we were getting paid to the point where I lost the ability to do that. They were, they were decreasing our, our fees enough to where, you know, you, 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 I could no longer afford to, to, uh, uh, give away that mm-hmm. care, and I think it really took it. It took a lot away from the practice. Uh, I, I enjoyed. I guess the flip side of it is I really enjoyed having the freedom. Today, almost almost nobody is in private practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, doctors work for big clinics or they work for hospitals, and and then even in the practice of psychiatry. The other thing that changed in psychiatry was um, when I went into practice. I did, you know, as an MD, we prescribe medicines. Right. But we could all, it was all, we were also trained in psychotherapy. So we did both. As, as, as uh, healthcare has changed to the point where psychiatrists today almost exclusively just prescribe medication. Hmm. They almost, none of them do, well, it's not fair to say none, but very few do therapy, which is really where you get to meet people and know people and understand right. people better. So I'm fortunate to have practiced during that time because uh, it was a, it was just really rewarding, really right. rewarding. And I learned a great deal from my patients, and I hope I helped a, a number of them too along the way. But um, um, enjoyed enjoyed. Well, then what I, I I tell people I was practicing in in. Microsoft's backyard. Microsoft was just getting started. It was growing. I was, and I saw a number of Microsoft employees, and I was interested in the technology. And um, I got it, got involved in computers fairly early in the mid '80s. You'll be you'll be impressed that my first computer I bought had a hard drive which had 10 megabytes of storage. You you download that on your phone. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, isn't that great? I mean, yeah. and uh, I tell the story that it, it had 10 megabytes and floppy drives. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was, it, anyway, it was the old days. <laughs> but in a year, I had filled up that 10 megabytes. I had to buy a new hard drive. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, in those days, you couldn't do it yourself. You had to take the computer into the computer store. I took it in. And it had a 40 megabyte hard drive put in it, and it cost $1,000. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, 40, man. 40 megabytes of storage, $1,000. <laughs> um, anyway, so, so I, got inter- I got interested in technology, and then the internet came along. And, and for some reason, I could see what the internet was going to do. I mean, I could, and I, I still have a picture of a whiteboard uh, that I have, we had at our house that I drew out. With, if you built a website, you could have education, you could have forums, you could have uh, out, uh, instruments, measuring instruments. I mean, I had it all, I had it all, this mind map drawn out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I decided to 
with the help, Jill was a big help in this, but we, we started at health.com. Right. And, uh, and we, we financed it to get it started. And we were running it for about a year. Uh, I started a, a newsletter called Friday's Progress Notes. When a, when a doctor writes, uh, when you leave the doctor's office, they write a progress note. Okay. Oh, okay. Or if you're in a hospital, you daily progress notes. So I called it Friday's Progress Notes. And I had about 100 email addresses of mental health professionals. And I started sending it out. I mean, this is really funny because, I mean, we were using a Word document and an access database and we were merging these things together and sending it out through modems, you know what I mean, (laughs) telephone lines. Um, The reason I'm laughing is because once Joe and I were in Spokane, Washington, Friday night we were in our motel room putting this Friday's progress on cell because it was time to send it out. What I did was I would pick a topic like depression. Mm-hmm. And uh, Google Google wasn't around. So how do you find articles about depression? They had a little bot. And I wish I could remember the name of it. And you turned it loose. I'd go into my office and I'd turn it loose. And it would go out and went around. It just found its way around the Internet looking for depression. Mm-hmm. And it would come back with maybe 100 different sites that had depression associated with it. And I'd go in and I'd find 10 or 12 that I thought were quality sites and I would put them in Friday's progress notes. Hmm. So I was sending these out to doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers that might be interested in the topic, you know, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, whatever it would be. Um, well, that by about a year later, I think we had, I think we had a couple thousand people that were oh, wow. getting, we were sending it out to, and a publishing house um, in, in Florida. They saw the internet and they wanted to get involved in the internet. And it was kind of, well, should we buy or should we build? Mm-hmm. And they decided, well, we'll, go some, we'll buy a site. And so they contacted us. It was a great story. And, and um, they said, they, well, are you interested in selling your company? And we said, well, you know, we're just a tiny little company here. We'll, let's talk. Um, so I, uh, I, a friend of mine was an investment um, banker in Seattle, Scott Hardman. And I called Scott and I said, I, this, this company's negotiating with us. I need help. I'm not a business person. So I met with Scott one day in Starbucks and I had drawn out a mind map. Are you familiar? You know, a yes. mind map with all these little deals. And I showed Scott what I was thinking about doing without help. And um, so he helped me put together a business plan. And go, Jill and I flew to Florida. Mm-hmm. We met with... Um, Tom, what was Tom's last name? Uh, and it was, it was a company called HCI. They published chicken soup books. <laughs> Are you familiar with Chicken Soup for the Soul? Yeah. Chicken Soup. Yeah. They were the publisher for Chicken Soup, all kinds of different subjects. And, um, well, we went back and forth a little bit with them, and they, they decided not to, not to buy us. Mm-hmm. But by that time, Scott Hardman saw the vision. Right, and he and he went out and got investors to come in to invest in our company. Well, in those days, and I'm sure it's true today, if you come up with an idea and you start a little company and people investors start to come out, they don't want you off practicing psychiatry someplace, right? Right. Or law, they want you involved in the company. Mm-hmm. So both Jill and I closed our practices in 1998, 1999. And we went 
full-time without help with investment money came in. I think there probably were in total 15 or 20 people that invested in the company. We raised um, between one and $2 million wow. uh, to get it started. Mm-hmm. And um, we hired, at one point we had 13 or 14 employees, a web developer, um, a, a chief financial officer, uh, various people. And it was fun, it was really fun. Um, but then um, 2001, the the boom bust you know it was a, people were doing crazy things like business plans on napkins and getting funded to build mm-hmm. a company i mean it was there was this frenzy about the internet right and and so when the when the bust came um we couldn't raise any more money investors dried up and it was reasonable i mean uh we had a board of directors that hung in with there with us and rather than rather than run the company into the wall and close it, our board of directors let Jill take it over. And we focused on education. So we continuing education. And that's what the company then became because we couldn't grow it into what we got envisioned. We tried to grow it into. So, So that Jill took that over and I went looking for a job. I contemplated starting my own practice. By then, I had some ideas about specializing in depression it had to do with clinical outcomes and but um somebody introduced me to uh, the um, madigan army medical center there was a, a one-star general that came to madigan it's in tacoma it's an on your army base fort lewis and this young general had he's a family practitioner who became a general and he came to head up the western region of the Army's Medical Command, which was Alaska, Washington, Oregon, California. It's called the Western Region. And um, and the, the Surgeon General from Washington, D.C. said the, this Ken Farmer was his name. He was a wonderful, wonderful family practitioner. Um, and he came up to Madigan with a mandate to run military medicine in the western region as a business. If you, if the Navy had their facilities, the Air Force had theirs, the Army had their, and there was no sharing mm-hmm. medically. <laughs> and so his mandate was to go out there, you teach people to share. Right. Well, my interest in, uh, I was already seeing telemedicine as a possibility of a way to do, do medicine in general, but particularly in psychiatry. Yeah. And so he, General Farmer, hired me to come to Madigan and start doing telemedicine. Well, I mean, here's another, I mean, it was, it was a, when we, we Zoom like this now, I mean, believe me, it was nothing like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the software we were using was, I mean, we, 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 we rather than Wi-Fi, we were using um, what was called ISDN lines, telephone lines. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I started, so I, go, I went to Madigan. There was a Navy base up in up in the Puget Sound area called Oak Harbor, and they and they were short of they didn't have a child psychiatry covered child and adolescent psychiatry covered, and so I would go up to Oak Harbor, which was about seventy miles away from Tacoma, 
and I would in-person interview adolescents. I started with adolescents because you guys, you you take to this stuff really well, (laughs) you you know. (laughs) So I would interview, I'd meet with an adolescent who was referred to the clinic and and, um, evaluate them. And and then I would say to them, now the next time I see you, I'm going to see you on TV. And they would kind of look at me and I'd say, we had this unit in the room that was a monitor and the special equipment to transmit. So, so then I would go back to Madigan and follow up. Most of it was medication follow-up. I wasn't doing therapy mm. over the internet, but I could adjust medications and so on. Right. And so I started at Oak Harbor. I went to Bremerton. I went to Everett. There was a Navy bases. And then there was an Air Force base in Spokane, Fairchild Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. So then I started a clinic over in Fairchild, which meant I had to drive across the state, meet with people. Cause I always <laughs> met with people face-to-face to start with and to meet them. I think I think that's true. I might have done one or two emergency meetings, but basically I would meet with them. And, um, and so that got me started into uh, Army medicine, technology, mental health, which I had. I started there, and well, it's, this is interesting. I started at Madigan on July 9th, 2001. 9-11 mm. happened. Yeah. And when I went to Madigan, they had, it was a beautiful hospital, a beautiful hospital. It wasn't true of Madigan, but the, the little military bases around, mental health was across the street from the hospital. It was in the modular building down the road. Mental health in the military, you know, you, you, it, was, it was separated. Yeah. Well, then 9-11 happened. And soldiers started, they went to um, Afghanistan, they started coming back, post-traumatic stress. Right. And, and uh, so all of a sudden, mental health was the focus of the of Army, Navy, Air Force, all of them. But we were at this huge base in, in Washington, and we got all kinds of resources to focus on mental health of soldiers. Mm. So I, I never dreamed that, you know, it took a war to get involved in this, but I was able to, and I worked for 13 years at, uh, with the Army, um, helping develop programs to assess soldiers. Um, we used different instruments that, would, that they would be assessed before they went deployed, it was called, when they went, when they would deploy to Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever. Mm-hmm. And then when they came back, we would assess them again. Mm. And it was when I had left the uh, the, uh, the Department of Defense, we had put that information on a tablet, so that when the soldier came back, referred to the mental health, they sat in the waiting room, and on a tablet they answered up to two hundred questions about mental health, mm. so that when they went to, in to see their provider, all the information was already on the screen for the provider and um we built that for under a million dollars uh there was a small group of us there was another psychiatrist a psychologist a social worker and then developers that Mm -hmm. helped develop the program and we the year before i left the army it was we deployed that worldwide. We went to Europe. We went to all the bases in the country, the army bases. So every army mental health facility was using that software. Hmm. The reason I mentioned that is because today, 
that software. The Air Force took it and the Navy took it. And whereas in the Army, you're called a serviceman and in the Air Force, you're called a airman. Mm-hmm. They had to change the language. But the basic core of the of the assessment was there. It's now been used by over six million people. Oh wow, that's amazing! So it was fun. I mean, I left it. I left it before it became so popular. But uh, good group of people, wonderful people to work with, and I had a wonderful, wonderful boss. John Meyer was a family doctor, and he was my boss most of the time I was there. And he essentially said, "You do what you want to do." and I'll cover your back. Hmm. He made sure that I got involved with these, you know, interesting projects. And so that was a great way. I got, uh, it was a great way to end, end a career. Uh, um, so that, that takes me to retirement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what have I left out? I'm not, I, <laughs> that's amazing. I didn't realize how many, like I knew that you worked in psychiatry, but I didn't realize how many like different sectors that you had participated in. So that's really amazing. It, it was, I mean, it was a, I wouldn't, I mean, I love my practice. I love private practice, um, but it was fun. Ad health was a, really stimulating. Yeah. And then, and then to go from there to the projects that I worked on in the military. And I actually, some of the things that I was doing on the whiteboard back in the mid nineties on the internet, we actually, actually, we actually had the resources to build right. them, which was, which was really satisfying. So Yeah. So. That's amazing. Oh, I have a question. So with at health, did that start out as like a passion project or was that intended to be like a business later on? Or is that just something you wanted to do? Um, you know, that's a good, that's a great question. I think when we started it, I think I always had the idea it would be a business, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. But, but we, Jill and I ran it with the help of Kristen and Aaron. Right. It was just a family deal for about, about the better part of two years. It was kind of as a hobby. Yeah. Um, I don't, because we weren't making any revenue. Well, I did, <laughs> I built an Amazon bookstore uh, for the site. And so we might have made a few few dollars off of that. <laughs> it was until we got investors in it, we really weren't being paid at all. But, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we can start on questions now, too, if you want to do okay. that. Let me look at it. I wrote them down. Okay, so one question that I got a lot, because I put a poll up on the Instagram, and um, one question I got a lot was, what's our first memory together? So I'm trying to think of, I've been trying to come up, because I saw the questions too, and I, like, obviously I can't, it's hard remembering, like, what the first one was. I think one of my first ones was when we went to Disneyland, and I think it was Disneyland, and I was in my Aurora princess dress, and we did the race car one, and you let me drive. <laughs> I think that's one of my first ones. Is that is that your picture, um, that, the fourth picture? Oh, yeah, I think that's the same dress. Is it? I think so, yes. That's the same dress that I was wearing, yeah. <laughs> that's um, funny. Well, you know, of course, my first memory is the first picture. Mm. Uh, that, that's taken at the Santa Barbara Airport. Yeah. And, yeah. And Jill and I came, I think we, we came to Santa Barbara. We tried to get down about every three months after you were born. We probably didn't make it every three months, but we kept trying to get down there 
about every three months. Oh, when you talk about Disneyland. One of my, one of my, well, I have two fun memories about one is Disneyland and one is the Disney World. Mm. Disneyland is a, the big Ferris wheel. Yes, that's what I was going to say too. <laughs> <laughs> no, we love you. I laughed about that. I laughed about that because you you were just riding along like, and it's scary. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Yeah, we, when we went a couple of summers ago again, and we went on it, I was like, how did I do this when I was younger? Like, this is terrifying. How did you do it? But I think that one of the, the memory at Disney World is, is, both of them is fun, but it's fun. We, Mount, Mount Everest. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> we wandered around there for two or three days looking at it, not wondering, well, should, should, shouldn't we go or shouldn't you go? I don't know. And so the adults are trying to decide. And, and so I don't, I don't know if you've heard me tell this story. I tell it to my friends. Mm-hmm. But so we, we decided, yeah, let, she can go. So we get on the ride. And, uh, and I don't know if you, you, remember, you remember, I mean, it's typically, it's like, it's like, uh, What's a what's a Matterhorn? It's it's kind of like like well, a lot like the Matterhorn at, at Disneyland. But we're going up, and then you you go up that one place, and it stops. Remember yeah. the, the tracks look like they're yeah. and then it goes backwards. <laughs> and, yeah. and 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 so we and we go around. We finish the ride, and I'm thinking you're sitting right next to me. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my stars! What, what have we got? What have we got her into? She'll never forgive me. And so, <laughs> but we, and, and we pulled up and we stopped. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, awesome. Do you, do you remember that? I do. I do a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was because I, I was thinking, oh man, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. great. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun one. I yeah, those are probably my first memories are like the Disney trips because those were yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. what other questions? Oh, what's your greatest influence on my life so far? That was an interesting question too because. Like, there's a lot of different answers based on how you interpret it. I think that, like, in I think you've influenced, like, what I want to, like, do when I grow up, obviously, because I talked about that in, like, the career episode. Like, you've had a big influence on, like, serving and, like, which branch and that type of thing. Um, but then also just based on, like, who I am. Um, sorry, I'm going to try not to cry. <laughs> um What a gift. <laughs> um, <laughs> just who I am as a person. Like, there were a lot of rough times when I was younger that you were always there for. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, and through all of it, even when I wasn't doing really great, you were always proud of me. And I always, always knew that. Mm-hmm. And so wow. I think having someone that was proud of me because obviously I know like my mom's proud of me all the time but having someone else um just always there to remind me I think was a really big deal for me because um it allowed me to be proud of myself because when I have someone constantly telling me that like 
I'm doing something good or I'm doing something worth being proud of, it allows me to, like, it gives me permission because I I don't like to be, like, boastful or braggy. And so when someone else is kind of giving me permission to do that, I think that's a big deal um, for me because um, there were some times when I wasn't all that confident in myself or who I was. And so always knowing that, like, you were a constant and that you were always going to be there for me was a really big deal for me. Um, and then also I remember, I think it was one of the times we went to Arizona, I think we were going for a walk, and I might not remember this correctly, because it was one of the first times we went to visit you, um, we were going for a walk, and you said that I was resilient, um, (laughs) and so, um, it's kind of funny, because, like, now, like last year when I was filling out job applications, they were they they would ask like, "What are your strengths?" and that that's a word I always use is that I'm resilient, and so like, um, <laughs> and so like, cause I think one thing I appreciate about you is that you're incredibly smart and you choose your words really carefully, and so. I know that when you say something about me, like I am resilient, I will always know that that's true because you don't sugarcoat things. And so I know that that's like, that's a fact. And so like being able to carry that with me and know that that's true, I think has also helped me be more comfortable in who I am. And it also helps me know that I'm going to get through things even when I feel like I'm not. So I think <laughs> that's a very long-winded way of saying that um, those are probably the biggest influences. <laughs> um, it's always been easy. I mean, you've made it so easy to support you. Um, I honestly try to check myself when I talk to my friends about you, uh, grandparents are biased about their grandchildren. But, um, and, and the, I've sat for thousands of hours with adolescents, almost certainly thousands of hours. Um, and in my own humble way, I will say I'm a real expert about <laughs> and I and I I, you have everything going for you Um, some of that God given talents you know I mean we don't deserve a lot of what we have but um, one of the things that comes to mind um when I think about it, I mean, it was a really rough time about five years ago. Yeah. And the picture that I have of you is braiding Scout's hair. <laughs> oh, that's not a big deal. <laughs> but it's a really big deal. <laughs> when I could watch, I mean, that says so much about who you are. 
You know what I mean? I mean, it's that picture. But the other thing that I share with my friends, and I've said this to you before, but if I say, for instance, what book are you reading? If I say that to the average adolescent your age, they'll say, you know, Moby Dick. Okay, well, what's Moby Dick about? Well, it's about a big fish. <laughs> and boat. <laughs> but if I ask you what you're reading, and maybe ask another question, I, I get the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> and that's remarkable. Thank you. Really, I mean, it's... It's just the way you, I mean, I can just sit back and ask a question or two and, and, and it's like going to a movie and there <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, and just recently when I shared it, I mean, you're thinking more about your future. Honestly, when I think about going off to college, well, you know, I guess it, 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 the story I just told sort of pretends what, or pretends what, what I, I mean, I went pre-med, business, pre-med, I mean. Um, and you're, you're, the way you're thinking through your future, it's not going to happen the way you, it's not going to work out just exactly the way you think it is, or hope it is, even. I mean, mm-hmm. not. Um, but, uh, but the depth you have, the wisdom you have from, as a young person is just so rare. Mm-hmm. Rare. You were so, talking about, uh, knowing that I was there to support you. And I'm wondering, you know, how do you wonder how that happened? Mm-hmm. How did it, where did we connect in that way? And I'm, I'm, I mean, the, the gift you just gave me a few minutes ago is, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll remember that forever. <laughs> really, I mean, what life is, there's nothing in life more important than that. Yeah. <laughs> really, I mean, family and what you, I mean, I just, I was telling somebody else, I was, you know, the, I, I'm a little worried about where the country is going <laughs> and I, what I'm going to, I'm going to, how am I have any influence? And I've decided I'm, I'm so fortunate that I have Kristen and Aaron, Max, Finley and Scott that I can talk to. Yeah. That is rare in my community. Mm. And I feel, I feel sorry for some of my friends who, don't have, don't have, that's a, I mean, again, another gift that I have from the, the five of you hmm. that we can talk. <laughs> yeah. <Zoom. laughs> you know, so thank you. I mean, um, that's, it's, it's a precious. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder, you know, I wonder, we, but we talked a couple of weeks ago on Zoom and I, how can we get you know, from 15 to 18, from 18 to 20 to 22? <laughs> <laughs> I want to protect you. Yeah. <laughs> but not that you, not that you're in need of that necessarily, but there's just yeah. a natural wanting to make sure that protect yeah. you. So you're <laughs> precious. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think how you grew up influenced how you raised my mom, and then also like how you interact with Scout and myself? Um, I was thinking about that because <clears throat> you can tell from my background that, uh, um, well, I think Jill and I will both say, honestly, we weren't ready to be married. We weren't ready to be parents. We didn't have good models. Right. And so 
uh, think about how did I, how, how did I, I've never thought of myself as an outstanding great parent. I mean, I don't think of it. So not that, but, but I, I knew when, when I guess I was curious enough when Kristen was born, um, that I, I wanted to do my best. Um, <laughs> and I read a book, I, I included it in this thing, as I call Promises to Peter. Mm. It was written by, a, he's a, I think it was a Presbyterian minister, Charlie Shad, Charles Shad. And uh, in that book, he wrote that to his youngest son, Peter. He had been, he had three or four children. Um, letters to Karen, he wrote, I don't know, it was one of the biggest letters to Karen. But anyway, Promises to Peter. And he, when Peter was an infant, set out these promises for him. And that book had a, a lot to do with how I approached r- raising children. Um, it was sort of a democratic, more democratic kind of, I will say, helping them to become independent. Yeah. His, his goal was to help the child have more and more and more responsibility as they grew up. To where when they were seniors in high school, they essentially lived at home, but they made all their own rules. Mm. Um, and so that was kind of my aim to, to help Kristen and Aaron have enough responsibility. So when they were seniors, we didn't follow it exactly, but that they would be essentially independent. Um, and and uh, I, I, resilient is, a, I think you and I are share that term, but I, when, when Kristen was, I think, eighth or ninth grade, um, we were living in Bellevue, and it went, I think it was a Friday night, might have been a Thursday, Friday night. She was on the phone, and in those days, it was the phone on the wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and it was, in a, it was in our family area, so it wasn't eavesdropping, but I was, I was coming into the room, and I, she was making weekend plans with a friend. And I heard her say, oh, my dad will do it. He's flexible. I've never forgotten that. I thought, all right, that's what I want. That's what I want. He's flexible. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, that was a real compliment to me. But um, the other thing is I, I, I sent you the, uh, the, the co- uh, cover of The Road Less Traveled. Mm-hmm. Um, the Road Less Traveled was a... Um, I was going to say one of probably the most influential book that I ever read. Mm-hmm. We were on vacation in Oregon in a small bookstore. I ran into it. Scott Peck wrote it. And and I say to people, as I started to read it, I felt like I, came, I was coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, we can talk more about The Road Less Travel later, but, but um, that book ended up, excuse me, my phone is ringing. No, you're my, fine. Uh, that book ended up on the New York bestseller uh, list. It was close to 10 years. Hmm. It was a worldwide success. Yeah. Uh, I met Dr. Peck and uh, almost went to work for him. He was forming a community group and he wanted somebody on the West Coast to represent him. He was back on the East Coast. I almost, almost went to work with him, uh, but because of family. Mm. Uh, I didn't feel like I could do spend that time on the road and so on. But anyway, um, and the, I think uh, there's a paragraph that I copied and sent to you about life is difficult, mm-hmm. and and 
And um, it has to do with life is difficult, but essentially once you realize and, and deal with life is difficult and you transcend it, then life is no longer difficult. Mm. And I think that really fit for me. I, for some reason, um, after my mother died and I was 12, uh, that she died in the summer, later that summer, I was, I was during the summer, I can remember, I just knew I was going to be okay. Hmm. It was like, like God said, you're okay. You're going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, even though parents, both parents were gone at that point. And, and I don't know, it was just uh, uh, how that fits with raising children. But I think I had that sense. I've had that sense through my life. It's I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Life is going to be okay. And, and I also think that, um, um, you're a humble person and I'm a humble, humble I try to be a humble person I, I, I'm no better than anybody else and I I want to say it comes natural in a way hmm. uh, you know it's not something I have to really work out a great deal I think that and um so how that relates, I'm not sure how that relates to child, raising children, but uh, I, I was, one of my philosophies raising Aaron and Kristen was um, try not to say no, hmm. unless you have to. Yeah. And that there are two easy answers, and one of them is yes, and one of them is no. And I've used the example, if Erin, as a senior in high school, um, and her curfew, let's say, was midnight, and she came and said, Dad, uh, you know, it's a prom or it's a dance or it's a special event, and I want to stay out till 2, the easy answer would be say, no, your curfew is midnight. Or you could say, yeah, that's fine. But to say, well wait a minute, your curfew is midnight, two o'clock. That's that's stretching it. Um, But on the other hand, your grades are good. You're you're participating in the family. You're kind of friends. Things are going. Maybe we can come to some sort of compromise. Mm -hmm. Um, And what do you think is fair? And... Quite honestly, if she had said two, I probably would say, okay, <laughs> but compromise, but maybe it was one thirty, maybe it was one or something like that. But that process teaches children their value. Yeah. Right? A simple yes or a simple no. But to agonize through those kinds of decisions, which I tried to do with them, uh, and okay, it's not black or white. Let's work through it together. Um, and I think that's part of what I tried to do, raising them and um, haven't, haven't had the opportunity <laughs> to do that with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe yeah. I will. <laughs> hey, Papa, what do you think of this guy? <laughs> well, Finley. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I feel like that definitely shows through with mom, like, she like essentially the exact same type of thing like especially this summer like there were a lot more opportunities to like be out with friends and other people and she would say yes until I gave her a reason to say no and so like because 
um, it was a little different, like, not that your example is, like, the only interaction that occurred, but, like, it's just a little different because these were, this was something new that had never happened before, so, mm-hmm. like, these mm-hmm. were different types of opportunities, and so, yeah, she would always say yes until I gave her a reason to say no, and so I think it definitely shows, like, in how she parents us, like, how you parented her, so that's really interesting. Well, you know, and it is kind of interesting. I think both Kristen and Aaron are better parents than I am. Mm. Or are better, better. Your mom is remarkable. Mm-hmm. She really I is, mean, yeah. She is, I mean, her insights and her, and it's not been easy. I mean, it's not no. been easy, but she is, she is I mean, I, 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 I listen to, you know, when I think I just marvel at her, yeah. her ability. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that the, the podcast you guys did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I personally thought there must, must be a lot of moms and teenage daughters that would benefit by listening to that podcast. Mm-hmm. That's a rare relationship. Yeah, I feel very lucky. Oh, I mean, it's amazing. Your, your Aunt Kristen has listened to it at least three times. Yeah, she's, she's told me that, yeah. And then, I mean, that's a, that's a real gift to you, too. I think they say, well, that's a valuable podcast. But, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You got, I mean, your mom is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. She's mm. really great. You got good kids. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give the kids, a, give the kids the credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's been really fun. I, I'm, I'm I'm kind of glad they give you some history mm-hmm. um, because, well, when I grew up, do we have to get off now? Oh, no, we're good. I was just, no, we're good. Um, when I grew up, uh, on my dad's side, he was the only male. He had four sisters. Okay. So he was kind of in charge. I mean, he was, he went to, I mean, I don't think he finished school either. I think he went to work to kind of support the family. Mm-hmm. His, his dad um, de- deserted the family, mm-hmm. left his mom with these five kids. Wow. And, and uh, in poverty. I mean, they were. Um, so w- at growing up, our, I don't remember my dad ever saying it because I, I remember him. I have only a couple memories of him, but my mother told us that our grandfather was dead mm-hmm. on the Florida side. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I learned he wasn't dead. Oh, wow. He ran away from the family mm-hmm. and went to, actually, I think he went to Oklahoma, uh, married. And eventually he moved back to Montana. When I was in the Air Force, he lived in Western Montana and I didn't even know it. Wow. I never met him. Hmm. Never met him. Um, and, uh, and, and what, what it mentioned, because I would have really liked it. By that time, my grandfather on my mother's side had died. And there were, I had no grandparents. And I would have loved to have gone over and met him and talked with him. You know, yeah. but, uh, so there was a, a, a lie in our family that kept us from meeting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, that's, but I'm just thinking, missed out on that history. Yeah. I still know the history of it. So. 
Yeah, no, that's why I'm grateful to have, like, especially this conversation, because I knew, like, bits and pieces of, like, your life and everything, but to have it all laid out at once, like, in order makes it um, a lot more, um, not a lot more interesting, but it makes it more understandable, because there's a, you did a lot in your lifetime. It's really remarkable, actually. <laughs> I've been really lucky, really lucky. Yeah, there's, on that, my Uncle Francis, he's my mother's brother, He's the he took over the farm, mm-hmm. uh, um, and I I, I want to give him a real he on the, if you look on the map yeah you got, is, is a map there yes I I've drawn a I've drawn a route from Great Falls out to the Durkis farm mm-hmm. yeah that's about it's about thirty five miles or something like that my brother and I you we, you know when my um, when my step father remarried and it was kind of two families my brother and i we had a little 1947 jeep mm-hmm. it was a, you, you know the army jeep you see in the movies that's what yeah. it was it looked like that <laughs> and uh, and i was we, we, in montana you, you get your driver's license at 15 mm-hmm. um but it was before we got our driver's license bob was a year older so he would have been you know 14, I was 13. We'd get in that Jeep, and that blue line there is a gravel road mm. out to my uncle's farm. And so Friday night, we'd hop in the Jeep, and we'd take off, rain or shine, snow <laughs> or whatever, and we made our way to the farm. And so we spent our weekend with my uncle Francis. Sometime yeah. I'll tell you a lot more about Francis. Yeah. He never finished. I don't, I don't know if he finished the sixth grade. But he was a genius in retrospect. I didn't realize it when I was growing up, but in retrospect, he was a genius. But we'd go out there and we'd spend the weekend. Now, we helped him because we were doing work around the farm, but we spent hours and hours and hours and hours with him. Um, he was a real influence in my life. I, I started working on his farm when I was 12, and I worked on his farm until uh, essentially until I uh, was a, finished my junior year in high, in high school. Hmm. Uh, and I mentioned that because on a farm, work is just part of life. Right. You're not clocking in, you're not clocking out, you're not getting vacations. And quite honestly, you're hard to get paid. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, it's, but I credit that with, uh, with instilling in me a sense of work that hmm. allowed me to go to work every day and I never resented it. Right. And I I mean, I'm really grateful for that because on a farm in the summer, you work from sun up to sundown, but pretty much. And and you work weekends and you work, sometimes you go fishing, but most of the time you're working. But but it just becomes a way of life. And I'm grateful for that, that I just, uh, I think I'm really lucky that I enjoyed work and was fortunate to have the jobs that kept me interested. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Sometimes it would be fun to go. It'd be fun to take you to Great Falls. Oh yeah, Sometimes. I would love that. That would. I mean, that would be fun to. I mean, I I want to go back. Bob and I uh, talk about you know mm-hmm. traveling around Montana. So I was ta- I was on the phone with him uh, this weekend, and he was telling me he was out near the farm. And he mm-hmm. we were talking about the roads and things we remembered around the farm, and so it's a, mm-hmm. uh, I have a warm spot in my heart for the farm. Yeah, no, I'd love to see Great Falls and all that. That'd be really fun. 
That'd be fun to do that. Yeah, yeah. You'd be bored. You'd be. Bored. No, we'd, I don't. We'd take it fishing or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been fun. Really oh, fun. Yeah. Thank uh, you for doing I, this. Oh, I'm delighted to do it, and I hope I didn't spend too much time talking about myself. Oh no, absolutely not. This was perfect. It was exactly what I wanted. Is it okay? Yeah. Oh, I trust you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Emily. I, I mean, it's a. It really is. A, I mean, I'm just so honored. Oh, thank I, you. I view it as my granddaughter. I just. That's amazing. Whatever you do, whatever you, wherever you go, whatever you do, uh, um, I'm proud of you. Oh, thank really, you. Really proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Brave, brave, and kind, and wise, and. Thank you. <laughs> we're lucky. I'm feeling okay. All right. <laughs> I feel really blessed to have you. I love you. I love you too. Okay. Bye. Thank you for doing oh, this. <laughs> thank you for me. Bye. Bye-bye. So that was my episode with my papa. I hope that y'all enjoyed it. I think that the life that he's led is really interesting, and I also think the work that he's done is really important. So... Um, yeah, I think that this is one of my favorite interviews yet. I think he's a really good guest and I really enjoyed it. And I think that he's really astonishing and amazing. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening.